And before we get into it, I want to also apologize to my listeners where apparently last week at certain stretches, the audio during our show with Jeremy Wu was suboptimal. Someone asked if someone was making sandwiches in the background. There were not (laughs) sandwiches being made. I had done laundry and was making my bed. But today, no laundry. Uh, Just some more Cavs talk with Chris Fedor of Cleveland.com, the excellent Cavaliers beat writer. And we've got a podcast coming out um, with Chris's show uh, sometime later today, I believe, as well. What's going on, man? Long time no talk. Jake, it's been great. It's been about uh, 10 minutes since we talked last. So maybe too long, if you ask me. (laughs) Where, Where are you coming with this just pure unadulterated energy right now you're just you're you've just been bringing it for the last hour plus well i like to say that i'm always full of energy and i'm high on life so um (laughs) there's there's that and there's also the idea that you know for the most part the Cavs off season has been wrapped up um they obviously have one big thing that they have to figure out they had this checklist of things that they wanted to get done this off season wanted to fix the backup point guard situation. They wanted to get a new backup center. Uh, They obviously wanted to get an extension done with Darius Garland. They got all those things done. Now it's just the Colin Sexton situation that they have to figure out. But it finally feels like post-summer league, post-draft, post-free agency, for the most part, their offseason is done. So I feel rejuvenated and refreshed by that. Everyone came here to hear us break down the the, the backup center Robin Lopez. Yeah, right. That, yes, the unblockable hook shot. I mean, he's going to play minutes. He's not. He's not going to be a, a non-factor. I'll tell you that. No, he's not. And the thing that they like about Robin, not to go too deep into it, but the thing that they like about he's, him is that he's different than Jared Allen and Evan Mobley. Right? He's more physical. He's bulkier. When you talk about a matchup against Joel Embiid or Vucevic from the Chicago Bulls, two of the teams that they would probably have to compete with if they were to get to the playoffs or to compete with to get to the playoffs, um, it's tough to ask Jared Allen to handle that level of physicality. It's tough to ask Evan Mobley at this stage of his development and his career and where he is um, in terms of his body just physically. It's hard to ask them to handle those kinds of matchups. So to me, this has been stated as a more matchup specific signing. And the other thing is Robin Lopez is known as a great dude. So the more great dudes that the Cavs can bring in this young and impressionable locker room, the better off they're going to be for it. There you go. Um, obviously, the, the, the banner item, the, the ticket A uh, conversation point about this team right now is Colin Sexton's restricted free agency. Um, you know, our reporting has been pretty aligned all along being that it's just, it's just what it is, right? There, there can't be too many different, uh, <laughs> pieces of Intel about the situation because the Cavs have drawn their side, basically, uh, Colin Sexton's people have drawn their side, not to say that it's an adversarial at all, because that mm-hmm. doesn't seem to be the case whatsoever. Um, but I want to go a little bit back in time because I don't believe we talked about this on your show. Do you have a sense or what was your read on where their talks were last year before the yep. season started to kind of set the stage for uh, where things stand right now? 
So last year, my sense is that that in some ways it was similar, Jake. Um, Colin Sexton and his camp were asking for more than what the Cavs were willing to give and what they were comfortable giving. And the Cavs always felt like in the back pocket that they could go into restricted free agency and it would play out in their favor. And so far it has. But the money that they were talking about last offseason, and this is when Colin Sexton was represented by CAA and Agent Austin Brown. Uh, The Cavs and Colin, towards the end of those conversations, Jake, I'm told they were kicking around Bogdan Bogdanovich money. Um, So he was around $18 annually, I want to say, with the Atlanta Hawks. Like that kind of deal, 472, 476, four close to 80, but not quite there. Um, that's what they were kicking around. And the way that it was explained to me then, you know, a couple of months earlier than that, towards the end of the Colin Sexton conversations, um, the Cavs agreed to a deal quickly with Jared Allen. He was an unrestricted free agent, but the Cavs didn't really want him to test the market because they were worried about some suitors, including the Toronto Raptors. So they're like, we're going to give him you know, pretty close to what it is that he wants. We want to get this thing done. And they gave him a $20 million contract annually. The Cavs always looked at that point, they always looked at Jared Allen as a significant piece of their core, a um, substantial piece of their core, and, and somebody who had already positioned himself within that core. Colin Sexton wasn't viewed the same kind of way. So if Jared Allen was going to get 20 million from them annually, and that's what he got, Colin Sexton wasn't going to get that because the Cavs at the time were like, can he be a member of the core or can't he be a member of the core? Like, where is his importance with our organization? So the Cavs, to me, from what I've been told, were never willing to go as high as they went on an annual basis with Jared Allen. So they were talking a little bit south of those dollar figures. That makes sense. And you know, as we've gotten closer, as we were getting closer to this off season, you know, the, the word I had heard most of the spring was Jordan Clarkson type money is mm-hmm. what Cleveland had ballparked for what their offer to Colin was going to be. Honestly, I don't know off the top of my head, what the cap legality, CBA legality would have been to have had those talks previously because it's an ex- it would have been like an extension, I think, yeah. at that point in time. Um, but I, I don't want to – I don't know. But I also don't want to say like I can't, I can't specify if those conversations were really being had before the buzzer went off. But it was just – look, in the accounting, like – when 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 Cleveland went and got Karis LeVert at the trade deadline and, and knew what they were going to have to likely pay him for an extension, they were accounting how much they were willing to pay Colin Sexton at that time, too. Um, right. So throughout the spring, Jordan Clarkson, around three, thir- three years, $13 million a year, was definitely the ballpark that it seemed like Cleveland was interested in. And the talk from Colin's side of things was something along the lines of Anthony Simons and Jalen Brunson and wanting a number in the 20s. Um, By all accounts, for everything you and I have both heard, like that, that still remains to be the case. And we talked about this on your last show, but I I gave you my answer, which I, I do believe this is headed 
towards Colin ultimately coming out and, and taking the qualifying offer at the end of this. Is that where you think this is the most likely conclusion? Yeah, just because I feel like the two sides are so far apart in their valuation of Colin. Not that they're looking at him saying he can't play. We don't see the positives that he brings to the organization or the Cavs are looking at Rich Paul saying, we don't understand why you're asking for the contract that you're asking. Not because of that, but just because of the situation that the Cavs are in. I just feel like they're so far away in their valuation. I got the sense coming into this offseason, Jake, like you, that the Cavs were most comfortable between 12 and 15 million annually. And the 15 dropped because obviously the Cavs made other moves to improve the roster. And now they're about 13 million away from the luxury tax. And I've been reporting for months that they're not willing to go into the luxury tax. They don't want to start the luxury tax clock this season when they're not a solidified playoff team. They're in the play-in mix. They could have to fight their way into the playoffs and maybe they become a playoff team. But they're not Milwaukee. They're not Miami. They're not the 76ers. They're not the Celtics. They're not viewed in that same kind of way, and they can't view themselves in that kind of way. So they don't want to go into the luxury tax. And anything over $13 million annually would now put them in the tax. And they could make other moves, create some more financial flexibility. But if the Cavs are looking at this as 13 is our number, and the Cavs are saying, hey, man, that's more than the qualifying offer. That's more than the mid-level exception. And that's the most that we can give you, given our salary cap situation. And Rich Paul and Colin Sexton are saying, we want starting guard money, something that begins with a two, not a one, in terms of annual salary. Like, it just seems like that's a significant gap to close. And I don't see Rich Paul being the ruthless negotiator that he is. And I mean that in the nicest way possible, because he fights so hard for his clients. I don't see him coming down to the level that the Cavs are comfortable being at. And I just don't think they're going to find common ground here. So for me, the most likely outcome is Colin Sexton taking the qualifying offer, trying to rebuild his value, show that he's healthy, um, show that he can adapt to this six-man role that he's probably going to be in with the Cavs, um, show that he can be a winning player, show that you know, he can close games next to Darius Garland in a smaller backcourt, like show all these different things. And then he becomes an unrestricted free agent next offseason when about half the league is going to have salary cap space as opposed to five teams that had salary cap space coming into this offseason. Absolutely. And two of those big factors you mentioned, the cap space, but also the unrestricted free agency of it all and the yep. sixth man of it all, where yep. you know, I've had a lot of conversations with people on the league that have been discussing the idea that the market for a starter is just far more vast and far more lucrative than someone who's considered to be a bench player, let alone a sixth man. And that's mm-hmm. something that's going to impact Tyler Hero's contract negotiations with Miami, being that he has not become a starter. That doesn't, I mean, and his postseason uh availability talked about how he wanted to become a starter like clearly that is a factor in his thinking about where he wants to be in his career and it does have a legitimate uh impact on guys earning potential when when you're considered to be a starter versus a bench player 
there can be a chasm sometimes of, of upwards of $10 million, honestly, on how teams evaluate certain players. And that's kind of an interesting element to the idea of Colin going back and, and, and betting on himself and proving it because he might just further show that he is really good at being a sixth man. Right. I had somebody say to me last week, Jake, so if Colin takes the qualifying offer and bets on himself, and he's very much that kind of guy, he is a bet on yourself, I'm going to prove you wrong kind of guy. But I had somebody say to me, okay, if he's going to do that, and he's going to take this lesser role from the Cavs, what is he resetting his market value to? What does he think he's going to get his market value to? Because I just think the reality is there aren't enough teams out there, Jake, that see Colin Sexton as a plan A type guy in free agency, or we're ready to give you 20 plus million dollars annually. I just don't think he's viewed like that around the league. Um, There are questions about his defense. There are questions about his stylistic fit. There are questions, you know this, Jake. There are certain teams out there that value certain things specifically. They put a higher value on them. There are certain teams that just won't take a six foot one shooting guard that can only play one position, right? Like they're just those kinds of questions that I think are always going to hover over Colin, that it's going to be tough for a team to look at him the way that he looks at himself and his camp is looking at him. Um, I just had someone tweet at me a graphic, Mobland, M-O-B-L-A-N-D, <laughs> with the subhead, sex ain't everything. So that is my update on the Colin Six Sexton situation there. And the last thing I will say about him, um, and I think we'll go and take a call from Arthur, because why not? He's here. He's been waiting patiently. Sure. Um, uh, the other thing that – the one – element that I do believe is playing a, a, a potential benefit for Colin in addition to all those teams having more space next summer, like you mentioned, or more teams having space next summer, more teams will be willing to go make a play for a player when they are unrestricted versus when they're yep. restricted. There is a thought, a prevailing thought amongst a lot of front office personnel. Why would I go make a lucrative offer for somebody, have my free agency held up for the maximum of 48 hours, just for someone who we're probably not going to get, or we might have to, we probably have to overpay Overpay. to get this guy to a point where it's not going to make, you know, if someone were to come out and give Colin Sexton a four year, $80 million deal, because Cleveland hasn't offered that seems likely they would really, really, really consider to match that. So are you going to go to 25 million to go get him right now? Are you going to go to 28 million to go get him right now? No, but when he's unrestricted and maybe you can just go get, go get him at an 18 million average annual value because Cleveland hasn't been willing to put that offer on the table. You can just go steal the guy you want. So Mm -hmm. I do think there will be more flexibility, more agency for him next summer. If he were to take the qualifying offer and become an unrestricted free agent, which is why I think that is what they're likely going to do. However, to take the three-year guaranteed, you know, 40-ish million dollars is also a pretty attractive opportunity. I would personally be considering, especially yeah. coming off a significant injury in the last couple of years. I agree with you. And that's something that the Cavs are sitting back wondering. This is a guy who does have questions about him, and he is coming off 
what I'm told is a significant meniscus tear. Um, like, why wouldn't he want that security? And I think the Cavs are looking at it saying, not only is he getting security and we're getting him for three years, but then he gets to hit unrestricted free agency when he's 26 years old or, or something along those lines. So I do think it's something that he needs to consider. I do think it is something that he is going to consider a three-year deal worth around $13 million annually. But I just think that's, that's so far away, Jake, from what he wanted coming into this that it's hard for me seeing him cave that much in this staring contest. I would agree. All right, we're going to go to our first call in Arthur, with Arthur. If anyone else wants to pop in, we'll talk some more Cavs. We'll bounce around the league. We're not going the full hour today. Chris and I have already been talking way too much about this stuff, and there's not too much you know, really to be breaking down, but we're here to answer any and all questions. The queue is open. Arthur, a.k.a. Raps fan, what's going on, man? Hey, Jake. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, big fan of you the show. Um, Chris, uh, just a quick question for you. I know you mentioned, you know, looking at the next couple of years and the Cavs taking the next step. When I look at the roster, there's a lot of depth. And uh, do you think that they require a consolidation trade in the next couple of years to take that next step? Or do you think they can organically grow with the current talent they have on the team right now? Well, I think there are two layers to that. First off, if they do bring back Colin Sexton, and there's a lot of confidence within the organization that they're going to do that. It's just a matter of what the contract is going to look like. In fact, I talked to a source earlier today that is counting him as part of this roster. That's how confident they are. But if he does come back, they're going to have to make a move because right now they've got 15 on the roster. Colin Sexton would put them at 16. So they'd have to consolidate somehow, some way. Um, Dylan Windler, Jetty Osman, I think those guys would be most likely to be the candidates to be moved. Um, Dean Wade and Lamar Stevens are on non-guaranteed contracts, so uh, they could just move on from those guys. But the Cavs like both those guys, and they're young players that they've invested in, they've developed. Um, and to further answer your question, like I think they feel like they're going to have enough flexibility moving forward that if the right opportunity presents itself, they'll certainly explore that because they're an opportunistic front office. But because of the flexibility that they're going to get beyond this year, Karis Levert in the final year of his contract, Kevin Love in the final year of his contract, who knows what's going to happen uh, contract-wise with Colin Sexton. I think they feel like they have enough flexibility that consolidating the roster moving forward is not a necessity. Um, in saying all of that, unless your name is Darius Garland, Evan Mobley, <laughs> Jared Allen, and I would throw Lowry Markkinen in there because I've had multiple people in the last couple of weeks call him a core piece of what they're trying to do and what they're trying to build, but mostly Darius Garland, Evan Mobley, Jared Allen. Unless you're named those guys, you probably can't feel great about your place within this organization as they try to take the next step as a franchise because, you know, the right opportunity could present itself and they would have to, you know, make some kind of moves within the roster to to effectively get that kind of player. And the tax situation we talked about on your show is certainly yep. something that's that's governing a lot of their decision making, right? Where 
they yep. know they're hurtling towards a big tax bill year after year after year. Garland just signed his deal after Jared did. Yep. Uh, that that'll kick in next season. Um, Evan Mobley will, will soon enough. You know, by the time Garland's deal kicks in next year, Evan Mobley's going to be a year away from his own extension talks. That's and that's kind correct. of the, that's kind of the price of tanking. People don't really consider that. If you do hit on a bunch of lottery level talents year after year after year, and you start to have success, it gets pretty expensive pretty quickly. Yeah, and I think there's another thing that looms over this too is the projected cap space, Jake, that the Cavs are going to have or could have in the summer of 2023, a summer when LeBron James could be a free agent. I'm not saying that they're hoarding their cap space to make it available for LeBron and they're saying, hey, LeBron, come save us because we don't have anything good going on within this franchise. But they like flexibility. They like optionality. Those are two words that they use all the time. So if they're going to take on somebody that has salary beyond 23, it's got to be the right player and it's got to be a significant upgrade. Um, because they like the fact that their cap space is what it's going to be next summer, and it gives them a lot of different options, in- including the possibility of maybe maybe exploring you know, a bigger name free agent than some of the ones that they were looking at this offseason. All right. We're going to go to a call from producer Zach. Is this a Mavericks question? Uh, hey, hey, Jake. Hey, Chris. Uh, hey. Appreciate you taking the call. Uh, no, I will try to keep it Mavericks neutral, but Chris Rebecca, so I am a big Mavs fan, and I know the Mavs have been connected to Sexton. Um, but yeah. I, I guess uh, my question is, is Sexton, like the the base year, I think it's called like the base year compensation rule, yep. where if, if a player gets more than a 20% raise in yep. a sign and trade, then the t- then the team sending them out can only take 50% of that contract value and the impetus yep. for my question is I know Mavs fans all the time we're talking about a sign and trade between Sexton and and the Mavs even if the Mavs are willing to pay him 20 million obviously the Cavs wouldn't be able to take back a full 20 million in salary um so right. my my question is just in general do you think the trade market sign and trade market would have been bigger for Sexton without that rule or is the luxury avoiding the luxury tax such a priority that that was something I wasn't aware of uh is avoiding that, like, would, does that make it null that even if they could have gotten valuable assets for sex and it's more important to stay under that luxury tax? So it is very important for them to stay under the luxury tax. I had it put to me that it's not happening, um, that they're not willing to go into the luxury tax. But I think you bring up a point about base year compensation. And I think that complicates a potential Colin Sexton sign and trade more than the average fan realizes. Um, in part because of where the Cavs are with their salary cap situation, but also in part that they have 15 players on the roster. It is a full roster right now, so they can't really take back multiple guys from these teams to stack up the salaries to make it make sense. In terms of Dallas specifically, I've checked in on that, and I'm told that the Cavs have no interest in any of the pieces that Dallas would try to flip them in a potential sign-and-trade. Um, Spencer Dinwiddie has 20 million next year that he would have to make. So that would be the Cavs taking on more salary uh, beyond 23, something that I don't. 
And then the same thing goes for Tim Hardaway Jr. and and some of the other guys. Uh, Jake, would it be known that Chris brought up the exact discussion about the Mavs trade? So now I'm going to follow up with a question uh, about that. <laughs> so in in that vein, have there been like Mark Cuban tweeted at a fan, like a DM to fan, like tell me a package the Cavs would want for Sexton, and I'll offer it to them. Have there been actual <laughs> like desires from the Mavs front office to reach out or has there been any contact or is that just all fans being crazy? I think both sides recognize that the path is not there for a sign and trade between the two teams, right? Like if you're talking about Dallas, if you're talking about Miami, if you're talking about Utah and the Cavs have to engage in these sign and trade possibilities, these teams kick around ideas all the time. And Jake, I know you reported this and I had heard it as well with with Utah reaching out to the Cavs and expressing interest in Colin Sexton. And of course, the Cavs are going to look at the situation that the Jazz are in. and They're going to say, "Okay, who makes sense for us to try and bring back in a potential sign and trade? And it just like there isn't the logical match between the Mavericks and the Cavs, just like there isn't a logical match between Miami and the Cavs. So it just doesn't make sense to even explore that deep into those kinds of talks. Yeah, I think, I mean, Zach's question, I believe, was had they really been on the phone? Yes. I I mean, from my understanding, yes. But how serious those talks have been, to Chris's point, doesn't seem – I mean, Dallas has both said – or Dallas people have both said we are excited about – Tim Hardaway Jr. in theory being our big offseason addition, right? Coming back from injury, he's going to be back, blah, blah, blah. They also explored the trade market for him at the deadline and again this summer. So um, he's definitely a name that they've brought up to other teams. Um, but, yeah, he hasn't played in a year, and he's still got a lot of money on that deal. And there's a general sense in the NBA that, you know, 15-plus AAV salaries for shooters – have kind of become negative value contracts. The Mavericks happen to have two of them with Davis Bertans. Um, you know, Duncan Robinson's in that mix. Buddy Heal a little bit more pricey, but he's kind of been looped into that same type of group. People mention Joe Harris in that group too, even though he is mm. – and the Nets, the Nets don't view him that way. The Nets view him as someone who can be a defensive piece, a two-way force, a, a real contributing factor – in whatever team they have that's hoping to compete next year. Um, THJ, I think, to bring us back to Cleveland, what real use do they have for such a highly paid, you know, role player, shooter off the bench type of guy um, when their their price bill is getting so expensive? Right, right. And that's the thing. Like, there are teams that that have shown interest in engaging the Cavs in a sign-and-trade for Colin. And I think there are teams that are interested in Colin Sexton in a potential sign and trade. But like how serious do those discussions get when you look at a team and what they could flip you back in a sign and trade and it just doesn't meet the things that you would want to satisfy that. Zach, anything Thanks, else? Guys. Appreciate it. No, that's that's all, all right. I got. Thanks for thanks for scratching my uh, Mavs rumor itch. Appreciate <laughs> it. You got it, man. What is 
the other like thread of this Cavs big web that we haven't pulled on yet, Chris, that you that you would like to, to get some intel off your chest? Anything you'd want to share with our listeners? Man, I don't think so. I mean, again, like their offseason has been pretty straightforward. They operated like a team that won 44 games last year and got to the play-in tournament and feels really good about what they have. Like they felt good about their chances of running it back and, and being in the playoff mix. So it's not like they had some significant landscape shifting offseason. I think the only other thing that is worth monitoring here, Jake, moving forward is, is what happens Thursday when it comes to LeBron James and the extension that he could get from the Los Angeles Lakers. Because spicy beyond saying that, that, it's spicy. I know, right? I know. It's, it's Colin Sexton and it's that. That's what I'm watching for the remainder of this offseason when it comes to the Cavs. Um, before I take that bait, I'm going to offer one last call for questions. And if not, we're going to expound out this LeBron uh, segment, topic, whatever, and we'll call it yeah. a show. Because um, yeah. it doesn't seem like we got any more calls. And I think uh, we talked about – I keep saying this. So it goes without saying. We talked about a lot of things on your show. If you enjoyed this talk, it's a, I can promise you, Chris, way better of a host than myself. Go check out that show when it goes live. Um, but ultimately, you know, back at All-Star, uh, I'm being told there are questions in the comments that I will also hit. Um, okay. But back at All-Star Weekend, um, that was when, you know, LeBron's reunion started to be – I mean, the whispers were loud. What, what's louder than a whisper but still quiet than, than a full-voiced – uh, you know, rumor that that's whatever it was. And right. I think from then, I mean, that wasn't by, that wasn't an accident, right? Like no. it was a homecoming. A lot of LeBron's yeah. people were, were backstage and hanging around just like they were back in the day when he was the prince that was promised on the prodigal son and all that stuff. Um, and long story short, it does. I mean, of course, Cleveland would be open to a LeBron return, but it does seem like the Cavaliers made it very clear. I don't know how they did, because obviously these things are sensitive and delicate, but I mean, the word I got was very clear. I'm sure if, if I heard it, the same thing was communicated to the necessary people through the you know appropriate channels that Cleveland would really only be open to that on a deal or a situation that made sense for everyone, where they'd be adding LeBron as you know a piece into this rebuild not you know handing over the keys to the franchise like they had done in the past um so i'm curious to see if there ever would be a way to make all that happen um and i i I am skeptical that would be if lebron is still playing at this level and still in such a championship robust mentality yeah i mean the Cavs are projected to have cap space. So if LeBron is willing to come here in that kind of role that you mentioned, Jake, where the Cavs don't have to blow up their team and and what they feel like is a good future, um, and they don't have to center the entire organization around him and and make moves that are going to appease him, um, all those different things that that teams have done in the past and, and usually have to do. Um, to bring LeBron to their organization. Like, if that's the scenario that plays itself out, and if he's willing to sign up for that kind of thing, 
I definitely think the Cavs would be willing to sign up for it. But one thing that they did say shortly after LeBron left is is they liked the fact that it was more of a, of a team thing and it was an organic building that they were trying to create um, where it wasn't one guy overseeing everything, um, where it wasn't one guy who was responsible solely for the success of the organization. And if you took him out of the mix, the team would completely crumble and go into tatters. So do they like the situation that they're in? Yeah. And I think there are reasons for them to be optimistic about the future. Um, But are they at a point yet with this organization where they can turn their back on that level of talent if he's willing to come under those kinds of circumstances that we talked about? No, they're not at that point yet. And it just so happens that their weakest position is the one that he plays and it's the hardest one to fill. So if he's willing to come under those circumstances, they would definitely accept a reunion for sure. Um, We are going to hit the the comments real quick, and then we'll take our guy Charlie Saturday's question, and then we'll go from there. We'll go home from there. Uh, C's banner 18. So, you know, you know what, what, what their motivations lie in the comments says they should trade. Chetty Osmond, and he's obviously been a name, maybe not obviously, but from our understanding, Chris, he's been a name that's been floated in trade talks yep. for years now. Um, I mean, I've always gotten a sense that Cleveland has valued him higher than the market seems to. Um, is that kind of your, your read on things too? It is my read on things. Um, one of the things is he is somebody who knows his role He has accepted his role and he can be successful in that role from time to time. Now, he's also erratic, so you have to deal with that level of inconsistency with him. Um, He's also one of the true natural threes that they have on this particular roster. Um, But if they re-sign Colin Sexton um, or if, if Colin decides to play on the qualifying offer and the Cavs have to consolidate the roster and somebody's got to move, He's somebody who could just because there are other options that they could play in his spot. And because, you know, at the end of last season, he fell out of favor with head coach J.B. Bickerstaff. He was in and out of the rotation. J.B. clearly lost trust in him. He felt like at times Jetty was trying to do too much, that he was trying to go above and beyond the role that that J.B. wanted. Um, so that's something that that needs to be considered as well. But but I do think the front office values what he brings to the table. And and the way that it was phrased to me a lot throughout this offseason, Jake, is if the Cavs were going to go out and use a portion of their mid-level exception or their full mid-level exception on a wing, um, whether it was Kyle Anderson or TJ Warren or whoever you want to throw out there that the Cavs were interested in and they, they reached out to, um, that guy was going to have to take minutes from somebody and they had Jetty already on the roster who can do some of those things that some of those other guys could do. So I do think um, there is value here with Jetty where they're not just trying to dump him in a salary dump situation or anything along those lines. I think they would want to try and extract some value um, for him if they're going to go that direction. And there are teams that call him a lot. I know you know, they're they're not really there now after the Rudy Gobert deal, but one team that I had heard constantly was always checking in on him was Minnesota and their Minnesota, endless quest yeah. to have found a four man 
Um, I, I do think Boston has checked in on him and had interest in the past. Um, but yeah, he, he is a, he is a player. I mean, obviously he's a first round pick and has played postseason minutes and he's been in a rebuild. Like he's kind of an interesting um, player that could look different in a lot of different situations. Um, yeah, and I mean, he's 27 years old. He's six foot seven. He can shoot from the outside. Jetty's coming off what he called his best statistical season in the NBA. Feels really good about the way that he shot the ball. And he's got a friendly enough salary. I mean, he's set to make seven million this year and it declines to under seven million next year. So it's not a salary that's killing the Cavs and it's not a salary that would kill another team. So I think there's value in that as well. We've got one last question in the comments, and then we'll go to Charlie Saturday. From Pando, I heard a couple of people mention that Washington and Charlotte have been involved in the Donovan Mitchell trade talks. Do you think either of these teams have a real shot at getting him, or do you think they're just being used as leverage to get more from New York? I have heard Charlotte and Washington. Um, I don't think either of those teams can come close to an offer that New York right. can – can put together, but I think that's also why things are in a standstill there, being that New York does not want to be betting against themselves. They do not want to be throwing in five, six picks when no one else can really put in even three. So the fact that New York can so overwhelmingly outbid anybody is both um, a benefit to the Knicks, a benefit to the Jazz, a benefit to Donovan if he does want to get to New York ultimately. But it's also a hindrance being that in order for a deal to get made, um, you know, the Knicks aren't going to want to feel like they've got they've been gotten just like people yeah. definitely thought that the, the, the Timberwolves were. You know, that, that was a pretty polarizing uh, trade. And uh, it, was a, it was certainly a topic amongst people in Las Vegas whether you liked it or you didn't, um, I think more people were on the side of, of, of not liking it and thinking it was, it was an overpay. Um, but I think ultimately from the teams that have been checking in on Donovan, you know, Miami and Toronto are other, are other two that I, I, I do believe have had contact and dialogue with the Jazz. I would say New York is clearly in a tier of their own in terms of teams that are interested and have the capital. I would put Toronto and Miami above Washington and Charlotte in terms of stuff that's out there. Although Charlotte does have a, a, a bit of uh, of a war chest of picks too, um, yep. they, but they can't they can't come close to meeting uh, to meeting New York. So, as I said on Chris's show, as I said here, people have certainly been talking about the Donovan to New York trade as a matter of when, not if. Um, and if he's not moved to New York this summer, I would I would think the, the the most likely like if we have to put a betting odds, his most likely next team would then be Utah because clearly the, the Knicks are interested. Clearly they've had contact and serious conversations. Um, and if that's the price point that the Knicks need to meet in order for them to get a deal, that's going to be the price point for any team to meet in order to, for them to get a deal. And I just yeah. don't see any team being able to do that, let alone competing with the Knicks if. They are. If if New York got word that another team was ready to push their chips on the table, I think they would yeah. probably ante up a little bit too. Yeah, and I think the other factor that always comes into play when talking about any trade, Jake, and you can tell me if if I'm off base on this, but it's motivation, and and not every team is going to have the same motivation for pieces back, right? Like some teams are going to want help now pieces. 
Other teams are going to want a load of draft picks. Other teams are going to say, we want a combination of draft picks and young players. So don't you have to start these kinds of conversations with the teams that can satisfy what it is Utah would want most out of a trade? They want picks. I mean, the the, the Nets right. want veteran players. The Jazz want picks. Right. That, that's been pretty clear. Right. And, and sometimes other teams are in a situation where they're dealing away these star players and they're like, we want salary cap flexibility or something like that. So I think motivation and what that team wants back in return is always something that, that fans too often discount. There you go. All right. Charlie Saturday, bring us home, my guy. Hey, fellas. Um, yeah, just bouncing off of your Chetty Osman conversation. Anytime I can bounce off of Chetty <laughs> Osman conversation, try to do it. Um, I've always been curious. So Ennis Cantor was in the news again today. He was commenting on something to do with the Turkish national team. Um, obviously been very outspoken on Turkey and their government leadership through the years. We rarely, if ever, hear from uh, other Turks in the NBA about that situation. I'm curious, Chris, after covering Chetty for a number of years, like yep. what that dynamic has been like. I know there's probably a lot of pressure on him. Is that sort of considered off limits to talk about? And what did you see um, in the interactions, if there were any, between Chetty and Ennis? And, and sort of what, what do you make of that whole dynamic? So I don't think it's off limits to talk to Jetty about those kinds of things. Him and I have talked about a lot of stuff outside of basketball. It's just, I think there are less um, people in the NBA that are willing to be as outspoken as Ennis Cantor on certain situations. And Jetty's not the kind of guy who often makes his feelings known on those kinds of um, topics. Let's put it that way. I can't. I have. I have no insight to share there. <laughs> I haven't been in an NBA locker room in almost three full years now, and I certainly. I, I was. I was in the Cavs locker room sometime late in or late 2020 in the 20th part of the season before the pandemic happened. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I got. I got. I got nothing for you there. <laughs> I mean, Chris, for a number it, of years, there were certain topics that LeBron didn't really want to broach, right? Um, there were certain topics that Kyrie Irving didn't want to broach. Um, so I think every, everybody has their own comfort when it starts to go down that kind of path that is beyond basketball and, and yeah. being careful about not saying the wrong thing. I'll tell, I'll tell one story about someone not wanting to talk at a certain time. And I was work. Maybe I've said this publicly before. I don't. I don't really recall. Um, but right, right before the pandemic, um, I was working on the finishing stages of my book. And one of the timelines: the Lakers' accidental rebuild in the final Kobe years. D'Angelo Russell is someone I really wanted to talk to, and he. And he mm-hmm. I was so prepared also to try to you know build up to the asking about Nick Young, and that whole recording incident and blah blah blah. So. I'm psyching myself up and trying to figure out the right path in order to ask that question. As I'm heading down there in Philly, so I'm, I'm based in New York, I'm from Philadelphia, so I was going to go visit my parents, go to the Sixers game. Um, I mean, I honestly might not have even gone to the game if because the night before, the Warriors, he was still in Golden State at the time. This is right before the trade deadline where he got moved for Wiggins. And 
the Warriors do a lot of evening shoot arounds, or at least they were when they fly East Coast for a big East Coast road trip. So I went to Drexel where the Warriors were having shoot arounds, and mm-hmm. I got there early. The, cat, the Warriors were late. I waited around two, two and a half hours. Um, I started writing something while I was sitting there, but you know, I spent some time. And finally, they opened the doors, and you know, Kobe had just died, so D'Angelo just didn't want to talk. He was you know, mm. really upset. And a guy that spent a lot of time with him and gave him was in his ear, whatever. He didn't want to talk, um, which I respected. Uh, obviously, and Kobe Bryant just died. Like it was a pretty, you know, monumental moment for anyone and affiliated in the basketball world. And so, I go the next day to the game and want to talk to him pregame. He says, no, he's not ready yet. I'll talk after. So I waited and I went down to Philly the night before, sat through the game, which isn't a big injustice, right? I got to go to a free NBA game. Um, And finally, 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 postgame, he was ready to talk. And then he was like basically trying to dodge me and get into the shower because he just really didn't want to talk about Kobe. And I said, I finally said to him, like, I'm trying to – learn what you benefited from being next to this guy. I'm not looking for anything, you know, inflammatory or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Right. And we did get some really interesting stuff. Finally, he told me that some road trip he was in on the road in Houston. And uh, Kobe was coming back from a, a meeting with Tim cook from Apple and like sat D-Lo down and was telling him about, you got to prepare for your post-playing career and your investment opportunities and all that type of stuff. But he was as locked in at trying to advance himself after basketball Hmm. as he was during basketball. But he did not want to talk about Kobe for about 40 hours before finally um, he was ready to. So that's my one story that came to mind. Hey, look, Jake, as you know, some guys are more willing to talk about certain topics than others. Sometimes you can find a topic that really, really resonates with the person. I have an example, too, on that, the opposite way. So LeBron, being around LeBron for the finals years, uh, when he came back in in 2014, that's when I really started on the Cavs beat. So I was around him for all of those finals years, um, the best four years in Cavaliers franchise history. One of his favorite topics to talk about in the locker room, just behind closed doors, just talking, not basketball, not football. He loved talking about the Cleveland Browns uniforms. Loved it. He was very, very passionate about the Cleveland Browns uniforms and how they needed to change them, how they needed to change the colors, how they needed to change the logo on the helmet and all that kind of stuff. So that's my one story. I remember going into the locker room and LeBron just, you know, they had just beaten whoever, maybe it was Atlanta, probably Toronto during those days, to be perfectly honest with you. Sorry, Canada. <laughs> um, but like they had just beaten one of the teams and, and somebody had a mock-up of the new Browns jerseys, what they were looking like. And LeBron just went off for 30 minutes to anybody that was willing to listen. Me and other reporters were in there and he was just going off on how ugly they were and how they couldn't be any good, how they needed to change the name from the Cleveland Browns and how they needed to change 
Like the fact that they're called the Cleveland Browns doesn't mean that they need to have Brown in their uniform. And he was talking about one of the high schools in Akron that is named Green High School, saying that their colors are orange and black. They're not green. Why are the Browns brown? That's an ugly color. You got to change that. So LeBron would love to talk about Cleveland Browns uniforms any chance you get. Well, I'm going to um, give one more LeBron story on that front, and then we'll get out of here. It was the la- It was the year they traded Kyrie. Um, uh huh. So they're already into the season, but then Derrick Rose had gotten hurt. Someone else got hurt. Dwayne Wade was injured, um, and ultimately LeBron ended up being in a situation where, I mean, it feels like from then until now, he's been trying to avoid being the on-ball lead creator year after year after year. Um, Sorry, I just got a call. So I'm sit. I, I went, as when I was at Sports Illustrated, I went to the garden in a morning shoot around trying to um, – trying to do a story about at that point in time, you know, Kyle Korver was on that team. Uh, yep. You mentioned Derek Rose, Isaiah Thomas, Jay Crowder. It was basically a team full of former Eastern conference playoff foes. So I did a whole thing yeah. about what was it like to switch sides and be on the bronze side of the ball. So I was talking to Channing Fry on the Knicks bench <laughs> and LeBron was working with some coach in the post and he he got wind of me talking to Channing Fry, and he wasn't talking to me, but he was definitely yelling at me, knowing my recorder was on, <laughs> making a scene about saying, I wasn't supposed to be a point guard this year. I wasn't supposed to be a point guard. We were in the post. We were looking. We were working on hook shot over right shoulder, hook shot over left shoulder, one dribble this, two dribble that, drop step, blah, blah, blah. Because he clearly was not pleased by the idea that he was the one – you know, firing a, a a ball into the shooting pocket of Channing Frye and Kyle Korver and Jay Crowder. He thought there'd be Isaiah Thomas or Derek Rose right. or other people out there. He knew what he was doing. He knew my recorder was on. And that was a perfect little uh, anecdote and scene to start that story. <laughs> That's great. That's great. I love that about LeBron. That's one thing that I love. He He thinks these things out. And a lot of what he does, almost everything that he does, is calculated. There you go. Everything Chris Fedor does is fantastic. If you're not following his work, if you're a Cavs fan, you are missing out. And this guy's got a pretty good pulse on what's happening around the league as well. So any NBA fan would be wise to tune yourself into this man's work. Anything you want to plug before I let you go? No, man. Nothing. Just check out my stuff, cleveland.com slash Cavs. That's where you can find it all. There we go. We'll be back sometime this week. Working on more guests, um, but we'll uh, we'll keep bringing it as as much as there isn't too too much new to talk about. But um, <laughs> we'll try to get some creative guests and, and keep the conversation going. Uh, thanks for everyone for listening. Have a good rest of your night, good rest of your week, and we will talk to you soon.